Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. So thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. This is the fourth installment of Courageous Conversations, and I'm so excited um, to have two very special guests here who are going to talk. I'm simply going to learn from them and try to moderate the conversation um, about social justice as an apologetic. And um, we have um, the Reverend Andrew Wilkes from Jamaica, Queens, Greater Allen AME. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome. So excited to be here with you, Lisa. And, and with Ikemini, you as well, Kimini. Yes. <laughs> Yuan in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Westminster alum. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for having me on, on the show, uh, Lisa. It's good to be here with you, Andrew. I'm excited to talk about these things. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to be talking about social justice, which is it's a lot to talk about because the headlines are full of things uh, to, to address right now. So um, how how can social justice act as an apologetic? And either one of you could uh, take a stab at that. Uh, well, you know, what comes to mind uh, for me is when I hear whenever I hear apologetic, I think defense of the faith. And I think first Peter 315 uh, where Peter, the Apostle Peter is uh, telling us as believers to, to, in the midst of suffering, actually, uh, he's actually telling us to have hope, you know, and, and, and be ready to give a reason uh, for our hope. And that's found in the gospel and found in the finished work of Jesus' death, um, life, death, and burial, and resurrection. And uh, without that, then we don't have any reason, you know, to be fighting for justice, because that means God's wrath was not satisfied um, and, and that our, our debt was not paid. Uh, but because we see that God is a God of justice and we see that uh, as, as believers in Christ, we have to own our culpability, our sin, right? Because uh, we were born enemies of, of Jesus Christ. We were born enemies of God. And so we see God pouring that wrath out on Jesus Christ um, in our stead, right? And so we take on, um, we take Christ by faith, you know, and we see that um, in his death, we died with him. We died to sin. In his resurrection, we're alive, resurrected with, to new life, and that we can actually live according to uh, what he, he um, commands. And so uh, that outworking of that justice that was wrought there on the cross has implications for us. And so if we're wanting, if we, if we say that Christianity is, you know, the true religion, it is the only way uh, of salvation and that nobody can be saved apart from Jesus Christ, then we should be seeing some measure of justice happening even in this fallen world. Okay. So when Christ ascended, we see um, that his kingdom was inaugurated. So that comes with peace, that comes with justice, that comes with joy and all those things. Uh, but we don't get the full manifestation of that yet, right? Because we see the headlines. But they, we should be able to bring a, uh, justice to be like a practical reality in people's lives. And so I think that when people see that, they get a foretaste of what is to come in the kingdom. So, uh, so I think it's one of the best ways for it to be an apologetic for our faith, a defense of our faith. Mm -hmm. What about you, Andrew? 
Yeah, I, I think those are, are really powerful points that um, you lift up, Akemene. Um <laughs> What I would say is on the apologetic front, I think so often uh, Christianity is associated with a kind of uh, colorblind theology. It doesn't matter what color you are, as long as your blood is red. They kind of stand in for various kinds of white uh, political conservatism. Uh, mm -hmm. And the image we get is that God cares about our souls in terms of redemption, in terms of renewal, but in terms of our bodies, and particularly the bodies so of people of color, um, not so much. And so the creation theology is, is weak uh, in many ways. And so yeah. I think uh, social justice as an apologetic really begins, for me at least, with recognizing a God who cares about us, who blessed us in the beginning, made in God's image, a little lower than the angels, mm -hmm. and God invites us to join in this work. It begins with God, but we get a kind of important and robust uh, invitation to join in this work of doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God, so that we won't have a kind of Christianity that papers over racial, class, and gender injustices, uh, but instead we can help create a kind of beloved community, which is a foretaste right, right. of uh, God's uh, perfect, just, and harmonious society in heaven. So good, so good. Can I say something about that? I love that you brought up the soul and body because it was a bodily resurrection. Okay, come on, Jesus come Christ on, is, come on. You're you gonna make my heart quake. Right. I mean, it's a bodily resurrection. He's not in heaven. Like, he's not a ghost in heaven. Like he's seated by the right hand of the father in his body, a dark skinned Middle Eastern man. That's Jesus Christ. You know, what is not assumed is not redeemed. So I'm just I love that you brought that up because it's so so important. Because you're right, the color blindness that comes through, people want to erase our ethnicities, and that is just unbiblical because Revelation 7 9 tells us every tongue tribe and nation will be worshiping around Absolutely. the throne of God so that was such a great point and I think it's particularly powerful that you lift up Jesus as a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Palestinian right. uh, in terms of his incarnation at a moment when Christians and our, our president uh, has released a executive order that just utterly discriminates against folks of different religious traditions uh, and gives a different kind of priority to Christians in ways that use the state not to advance the common good, but to be an instrument of uh, disparagement and, and profound injustice. And so accenting the Jesus who uh, had to flee Herod's order, interestingly, to go down to Egypt uh, is something that's important to lift up so that people see that the outrage against what Trump is doing is not just political, but there are theological and canonical reasons for yes. being uh, grieved with what Trump is doing. This is not to say that um, to be a Christian one necessarily has to be anti-Trump, although on political grounds, I think I'd be very close <laughs> to making the point. Uh, but on theological grounds, I, yeah. I try to be generous enough to acknowledge that people enter from multiple uh, True. ways. True. Yeah, did you have anything to add to that? Can no, y'all don't want me to talk about Trump, so let's do <laughs> <laughs> No, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with what he said, so I, I can't even improve upon that. <laughs> so this kind of leads us into our next question. What um, issues of justice should the church um, be tackling? 
You know, I, I, I'll start and then uh, Kim, I'll, I'll pass it to you. Um, it, it's my contention that um, I think uh, capitalism uh, and the way capitalism meets with racism is uh, the material environment within which so many different kinds of injustices uh, come out, uh, gentrification, police accountability, because that happens differently in places that are low income relative to more affluent spaces, um, unequal pay for equal work. I mean, we, we can go on and on and on down the list. And so I, I think um, that capitalism as it's currently arranged is, is fundamentally inhospitable to mm -hmm. Christian traditions of holding a common purse, of doing justice, loving mercy, walking home with God, attending to the weightier matters of the law, uh, remembering the poor, like the apostle Paul said he was eager to do in Galatians. Um, and again, I, I, I try to be generous in recognizing that I'm moving from inferences which are not solely biblical and theological, right, right. Uh, but are certainly impacted and inspired by that. Uh, and I think that pushing towards something that calls for structural transformation and looks a little more like a democratic kind of socialism that has room for markets and other kinds of things is a way to take the kind of isolated disparate kinds of injustice fights we have and to link them to a much larger uh, kind of picture. Mm. Yeah, um, I think for for me, I think somebody, there's so much that the church should be, should and could be taking on. I, what comes to mind for me is education, mm. education inequality. Uh, I'm, I'm in Philly, you know, and our public schools are in shambles. And it's a shame that literally 15 minutes away. Uh, I live in one of the best, I'm 15, 15 minutes away from me is um, mm. one of the best school districts as far as public schools go in Abington, Abington, um, Pennsylvania. And yet mm. just 15 minutes away in Philadelphia, we have just destruction, you know, and just, uh, uh, what can you say? abandonment really um and and it's a shame that the church has contributed to that white evangelicals fleeing you know uh the the public school system right uh because they don't want to send their schools uh, their students i mean i'm sorry their children um to school with us our children right um and mm -hmm. so uh, so that's something that the school, the church should definitely uh be beating back be fighting for and then within that the school to prison pipeline uh mm -hmm. that's a very big issue uh right now filling up our our our, our carceral system you know with black and brown kids uh being penalized for what for for uh, hitting a kid or playing rough, like all children do. I mean, our children are not allowed to be children. Uh, and so, so those are some things that just come to mind. Uh, obviously, uh, police brutality, of course. Uh, the church can definitely begin to create their own oversight board or even collaborate with the organizations that have already done that. I mean, there's just, there's a plethora of things uh, that the church can be doing uh, and taking on. Those are the ones that really come to mind, but he had mentioned equal pay. Yes, I'm thinking about pay inequality for women as well. But in that same vein, we gotta see how does the church, does the church value and esteem women? So how can we have be that prophetic voice Go to, that. to the culture when we don't value women in the church? You know, and I'm not even getting on the pulpit part, you know, because as you know, I'm actually complimentarian. But 
I there's we can still be leaders. There's so much we can still do. You know, like that is not the only area of like power in the church, or it should not be. And so, what does that look like? So, and I think we just need to be creative. You know, and it doesn't just have to be us being in the church. We're in the world. We do different things. We're in different sectors. You know, so what does it look for look like for the church not to retreat, but to really enter in to these spaces? You know, knowing that God is overall. So. Would you like to add anything to that, Andrew? No, I, I um, appreciate many of the points that you are raising. One of the things which came to mind when you started off talking about education are the often obscured origins of the religious right. Uh, a lot of times the story is told that the religious right enters the public square on abortion, on gay marriage, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but many uh, historical accounts suggest that it's actually, uh, I believe it's the school Bob Hope, and they're them wanting to maintain a segregated student pool mm -hmm. and not admitting folk of color. And so it's kind of preserving a sort of racialized imagination uh, that begins to be a kind of legal fight from which yeah. we get the religious right. And so uh, dealing with expunging the kind of demonic presence of racism is not only a, a kind of attitudinal thing, it's also about a kind of social holiness that purges our institutions and educational ones among them. Yes. Uh, from the kind of crystallized injustice that we have just kind of wrongly accepted in some quarters as, you know, kind of God's providence or some order of creation, when in fact, it's a human constructed and maintained sort of system. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I think that's important for people to understand, because, you know, if we leave it all up to if we kind of think of in terms of it's just God's sovereignty, we take away the responsibility of what we need to be doing. Um, I know as uh, one of the unique things, and I was talking to Andrew about this before we started, was that he is a pastor of social justice, which I, that's my first time wow. hearing of that's a awesome. that has uh, a pastor dedicated to just the ministry of social justice, and you do the young adults too, but um, one of your jobs is just to focus on social justice at Greater Allen. What what things of, have you implemented or what are some best practices that you could share um, as it relates to how we kind of deal with these and what um, things we should be doing? Um, and how have you seen that work in policy and working with leaders and so forth? Uh, absolutely. Uh, a number of things comes to mind. I, I think one of the uh, important things is to ground the work of social justice uh, in, in our traditions. Uh, so whether we're talking about grounding it in scripture and looking through the Psalms and through the prophets, through uh, the work of Christ, again, talking about the weightier matters of the law, mercy, faithfulness and justice, looking at the Pentateuch and, and Deuteronomy and God's kind of liberating, liberating for us there. So I found that to be kind of lay some of that theological groundwork. Uh, additionally, uh, additionally uh, we have really been intentional about linking contemplation with action so that we not only have a space to talk about injustice, but we have uh, actual kind of campaigns that we can do. So we've done uh, lobby visits and organizing work around gun violence prevention in, in New York and down in D.C. Uh, we've worked with a number of great community organizing partners. Um, uh, Faith in New York is one of the city that we worked a lot worked on gentrification issues and um, uh, 
fight for 15 in some other matters. Uh, so that's been important, collaboration and addition to kind of grounding it in the channels of scripture. Uh, the third thing that I would say that we found has been particularly important is trying to create to continual events uh, for political education. And so uh, we're doing um, later this month our second annual justice lecture, which is leaning on friends in the academy to talk about some of their research in areas of religion and politics and economic stuff and to kind of bring the conversation uh, to the church in a way that is accessible and in a way that can renew our mind not only towards God, uh, but towards one another and how we position ourselves in society. So, uh, you know, we, we, we have things that we can refine, obviously, and perfect, but we're, we're trying to be faithful out here. Faithful out here. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Are y'all hearing the echo by chance on y'all side? Or is it just I, I don't I don't hear an echo. Okay. So maybe it's just mine. Okay. okay. Um um I know you work a lot with within the evangelical reform content. What are some best practices that you've seen in your context uh, as far as helping 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 white evangelicals understand uh, the issues in the African American community? Well, you know, it's interesting. I personally am, I kind of, I am very much involved in my local church. And, uh, and so actually what a lot of what Andrew said are uh, his church is doing, what he does in his role is our church is starting to take that up. And so the school to prison pipeline is something that we're working on. Uh, we have a think tank where we're starting to try to figure out how can we begin, you know, to attack a lot of these areas. Um, that are lacking a presence of the church um, in that. And even having friends from the academia actually come um, also and translate a lot of this stuff for us too. So that was uh, encouraging to hear that that's what you're, you're doing there at your church. And um, so I, I, I work independently. Uh, I think in some ways my ministry is more so, it's just me. <laughs> and, um, and I am more so writing and speaking out about racism. So it's more anti-racism work that I do than racial reconciliation. So I think anti-racism work though is uh, in service to racial reconciliation. But um, I, so what I'm doing is when I often see a lot of racist, uh, racist uh, acts or things, I'm oftentimes speaking out about those things or I'm writing against those things. So when I'm, when I go and speak at various conferences or whatnot, um, I'm aware that people are not going to be happy with what I have to say. Mm. <laughs> so I come in with that, that mindset. Um, but I, and I don't uh, seek to be un, uh, contentious, like on, on purpose. But I, I think that in order for us to reconcile, we need truth. Um, we have to reconcile around truth or else there is no reconciliation, reconciliation. So, so when I go and I speak, I'm speaking very directly. I'm speaking very truthfully. I'm talking about white supremacy, probably things that they, that they might not think, you know, is that they're maybe complicit in or participate in because they think, okay, white robes, crosses burning, which it is that, um, but it also looks like khakis and a blazer. Um, and you preaching about a gospel where black people, Asian people, brown people don't see themselves at all as mm. contributing to church history. So, uh, so it looks like that. <laughs> and actually, that's much more prevalent, though I know the, the former is starting to rise up too now. But, but yeah, so that's what I'm doing. So I'm shaking people's uh, 
categories and understanding of these things. And so best practices, honestly, is just more about me making sure I'm protecting myself in some ways because it can be very um, dangerous, to be honest. I mean, I've, I've had somebody come to my church looking for me. I've had people come to my job. Like, it can be kind of... Because you're talking, you're shaking people's idols, you know? And at the end of the day, it really is a spiritual stronghold. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, I'm not always... I don't, I'm not really hand-holding. I'm just there to proclaim what, you know, what the word says about this and why it's wrong. And then the, ra- the hand-holding is for the racial reconciliation people. I just come in with a dark, bye. You know, like that's kind of... <laughs> you can move now, but... <laughs> But I'm available. You know, I'm always available. You know, I'm here. I'm, that, a, a lot of my work is in, is in social media, is what I do there, and then speaking and writing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Wow, you, wow. You, it sounds intense. It is intense. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the faint of heart, so I salute you in that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you think the church should be engaging the Black Lives Matter movement? I know both of you have written a lot on this uh, subject. Um, so either one of you are free to go first. Andrew, you want to go since I was just talking? <laughs> sure. Ha- ha- happy to have uh, the alternating kind of rhythm. Uh, I think <laughs> one really great place to begin. Um, the Movement for Black Lives is a collection of about 50 organizations, Black-led or mostly staffed by Black folks, that have put out a list of policy proposals and recommendations for moving forward. And I'd like to start there because one is a collaborative document that I think is very much in spirit with the kind of leader full sort of approach to social change and organizing that uh, characterizes their work as well as that of some others. Uh, But also it gets beyond the myth that uh, Black Lives Matter is only about uh, police accountability and uh, dismantling um, um, the um, mass incarceration complex that we have, whereas it includes those, includes those goes beyond to deal with to deal with economic injustice, Israel Palestine issues, uh, community control, and a number of others. I think that's one important way to organize um, study sessions and, and, and Bible studies around, and I have some friends in who've done you know that work to really great effect. Um, the second thing, which I think is particularly thorny. It's important to enter into is that uh, in BLM spaces they often have a different kind of approach around issues of sexuality than what is typically the case in most, but not all black church contexts. So I think it's important um, wherever people land. Uh, I think again, I found that creation beginnings are useful for where we start. And so when folks talk about gay and trans and lesbian and folks, we often forget that regardless of uh, their kind of intimate choices, that these are people who bear the image of God. These are folks who are, who are made just a little lower than the angel. So instead of beginning with condemnation or or denouncing beginning with with that creation starting point and then we can work from there and to the extent that there's secondary and tertiary conversation that various folks might have i think it it begins from that humane space as opposed to what sometimes happens you just begin with kind of scapegoating queer folks for the kind of unraveling of society in ways that um 
I don't think I don't think are honest or unfair. So I, I, I would say those two things: engaging on a policy front and engaging from the kind of creation, leading framework, creating space to, to hold a difficult kind of solidarity together. That's good. That's good. Yeah, um, that that was going to say Genesis one twenty six to twenty seven, Imago Dei. You know, um, and so may we're all made in the image of God, uh, regardless of uh, your sin proclivity, our sin does not um, extinguish the image of God within us. Wh whatever you be, gay, queer, trans, straight, white, black, whatever, um, that we are in the image of God and we remain um, in that, in that um, way. Uh, and so I think the entry point oftentimes that I, I um, admonish people to consider is co-belligerence. So the doctrine of uh, co-belligerence, that would be Francis Schaeffer, who talks about how, um, how the church can engage different issues with the understanding that, that um, you can team up with unbelievers if you agree, if, if they're fighting for something that's just, if they're fighting for something that does line up, you know, with what the word uh, prescribes, you know, um, and, and says should be done, um, say for the orphans or the widows, um, which are now what single mothers, those are our modern day, you know, uh, widows now. And so we're thinking, so here he, he would say, so uh, an ally, you know, is somebody that you can go, you know, a long way down the road, but you can't go all the way there, right? And so you're thinking that, okay, if it's police brutality that we're wanting to beat back, right, uh, you can join up you know, with uh, folks in BLM and, and know that, man, I'm, I'm fighting for this one issue because this issue right here is something, you know, that uh, threatens the image of God. It's an assault against the image of God, which is also an assault against God. And so I want to team up with them upon, on that. And so whether you affirm, you know, uh, you know, their sexuality or not, you can at least join up on that, that one thing because of common grace and the reality that everybody's an image bearer. So they know instinctively and within their souls, you know, that something is not right, you know, uh, that this is not, they know what justice and injustice looks like. And so we can enter in um, with that knowledge and with that understanding. So, and I think now with this president, this administration, we're, Definitely in a, a a different iteration and time of what of what you know what of what this uh, movement looks like. Uh, I think there's going to need to be many hands on deck. Uh, that's what happened with the civil rights movement. So, and, and as you said, um, M4BL has many many organizations. You know that maybe people can be like, I can't get with this one, but maybe I can get with this one. Or maybe you start your own, but do something. I mean, so it's not enough just to say, well. I can't because of that. Okay, that's fine. But what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to team up with another organization that's BLM adjacent? Or are you going to start your own and begin to collaborate? What is it? I don't think that we have an excuse to rest on our laurels um, because, you know, we don't maybe affirm, you know, the, the full extent, you know, of the person's, you know, sin, whatever that might be. So hope that makes sense. But. <laughs> I also want, want to acknowledge um, that I, I do have many uh, dear friends and colleagues in ministry, some of whom are same gender loving and who approach scripture um, from a different context. Uh, and so I, I do want to make space for the fact that 
um, you know, folks often will share agreement on the role of scripture, agreement on the sacraments, God's crying presence, etc. Uh, but this is an issue in, in black churches where, where folks are, are divided theologically. And so I just want to create space for right. folks who, um, who read, um, you know, love God, all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang on this, and they read the law, the moral, civil, ceremonial law through that kind of Christocentric hermeneutic, which is a bit allegorical, but I just want to again acknowledge, I don't want to invisibilize people who read scripture in that way. Um, I just want to note that, but also with respect to BLM, I, I really appreciate the point you're making, Kimney, that it's important to do something. Uh, oftentimes, critique becomes an excuse for inertia and inaction. Um, um, Whereas the, the stakes are, are, are too high and the opportunities are, are too many to just not uh, be engaged. And oftentimes local engagement is a really great place uh, to, to begin. Yes, local, yep. Since both of you brought up this about, uh, uh, about the church being involved in, organ in organization, um, um, I think that uh, sometimes, sometimes you try to reinvent wheels without joining um, organizations that have already done a lot in our community. How do you think that uh, the church should we be the church be looking for those organizations and trying to work with already established organizations or creating new organizations and coalitions? Are those things outdated? Outdated or? I guess it depends on the issue, right? I don't, I don't know. It depends on what you know what the issue is, and is say is the urban league taking on I don't know gentrification? Is you know NAACP doing that? What what does that look like? And maybe I think maybe if there's a void, um, and we have the expertise because we don't want to be doing it sloppy now, so we're doing it for the Lord. So, <laughs> Uh, then we can maybe enter in and start to begin. Okay, what does it look like for us to try to really tackle this modern day colonialism, like which is gentrification, uh, and and reduce uh, displacement uh, of indigenous people, you know, from their places, and make sure that they're not being built on top of. Um, that's just something I just threw out, you know, as an example. Uh, but if they're doing that, then why not join up with them? I mean, I really don't believe in like reinventing the wheel. We don't have to. Um, if they already laid the groundwork, then why don't we enter into those spaces? And I, I think sometimes we don't really, I don't know. I think sometimes the church is just, we're just way too scared, like, you know, of the world or, oh, but they're, they're liberal on this aspect or they're progressive on this, you know, part. But we're supposed to be the salt of the earth, right? You know, uh, and we're supposed to be the light, the light that shines in the darkness. So then why don't we go in and penetrate those places that we perceive to be darkness um, and, and, and show, show up in those places. And then we can actually give people the reason for the hope that we have inside, <laughs> inside of us. So I believe in actually going in and not necessarily creating a new space, but I think that sometimes creating a new space is necessary if maybe the issue is not being tackled or, or if the way that it's being um, tackled is an affront to God if that makes sense. So I, I'm for going in if there's something established, but, you know, with some exceptions, if need be. The story of um, 
Reverend Dr. William Barber and some of the work that he and colleagues are doing down in North Carolina stands out as a way to kind of move across multiple boundaries. So he came to prominence along with a number of other people in this more Monday for together movement right. in North Carolina, pushing against horrible voting, voting rights, restrictions, um, school issues, a whole range of things. Um, he originally came to prominence through a well-known vehicle, NAACP, North Carolina state president. Uh, but over time, as the movement began to grow, uh, they would collaborate with um, uh, the SEIU, which is a big labor union. And then ultimately, um, to do the kind of work that he wanted to do, he and some others started Repairs of the Brute, which is a broader banner where he leads in a, uh, a very clearly identifiable kind of Christian way, but also in a multi-faith sort of context. And so ultimately, it, it, it started through kind of pre-existing structures, but ultimately mm. to do the kind of work that he wanted to do, he had to use those relationships to create something different. And so I think for mm. many congregations, you begin with who's in your area. Are there tenant associations? Are there labor unions? Are there block captains or community boards that you can work with? And then over time, it may make sense to develop an independent dance of power so that you can collaborate from a space where you can uh, have some decision-making integrity, some some walk-away infrastructure if you need to, and so that you can also advance an, an agenda if folks don't necessarily want to prioritize what you want to prioritize. And I say that because I think self-determination is pivotal on an institutional and individual level for folks to, to be able to glorify God in advance just in a way that, you know, you feel like you have your integrity. That's good. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Um, I wasn't going to bring it up, but it is the elephant in the room. Uh, Donald Trump, our president, same president, Donald Trump. Uh, I, I still have it's still fitting well with me. Um, so, uh, how should the church be dealing with his policies on immigration? Oh, gosh. I don't even know. I'm thinking through that myself. I'm <laughs> oh. I'll give it to you, Andrew. I, I, I'll start and then I'll, I'll pass it to you, Kimna. Yeah, um, yeah, please. I, you know, interestingly, he, he doesn't always come to mind uh, for me, but uh, Luther comes <laughs> to mind now uh, when he talks about the importance of vocation being something that happens in the world and not just in sanctuaries. And when we talk about something like immigration, I think this is where public interest attorneys and legal expertise is paramount. Uh, so the ACLU, for instance, uh, was really critical in getting some of the most uh, draconian aspects of Trump's executive order blocked in a legal state. And there are just certain kinds of spaces and maneuvers, particularly on immigration, where you need uh, verifiable, credible attorneys who aren't trying to fleece the saints, amen, yeah. uh, to yeah. help you figure out what your immigration status is and how they can resolve your issue. Uh, so that's the first thing. I think we need uh, a battery of attorneys who have the training, the chops, and commitment to work on these kind of issues. Uh, the second thing that I think we need is also um, continue direct action and where necessary flooding the street. Yeah. A part of what I think gave attorneys more leverage is that folks are Shutting down airports, Miami and New York City, or JFK, uh, in Dallas, people shutting down airports because folks were paying. And so, this kind of extra 
judicial pressure gives um, uh, attorneys the leverage that they need to to cut a better deal, even though, even though obviously the convention is that uh, there's objective reasoning, these kind of external pressures don't impinge on the court. Of course they do. So I think those two things are important. And certainly, I would certainly say, I think, like the persistent widow, um, we have to continually pray, always and push justice from the structures and authorities. Authorities don't want to say yes. They say yes because they keep battering the throne room with heaven and we're doing it on the earth as well. Amen. That's good. Yeah, uh, I was at, at the protest in, at the Philly airport and uh, on Sunday, actually, after church, actually. <laughs> and so, uh, and uh, it was, it was sad to be there, but, you know, for that reason, but it was good to see like what direct action can do. Uh, because I don't know if you guys are aware, but there was two Syrian Christian families who were sent back from the Philly airport, mm-hmm. right when that, you yeah. Mm-hmm. Right when that uh, wow. EO went through, you know, so that we saw like legitimate impact, you know, here in Philly and the family, you know, members that were here had, I guess, had voted for Trump. Uh, well, that's a whole other story, but, you know, let me not get sidetracked. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think, so I think direct action, you know, is definitely important, but I think it's a, what I'm trying to, I don't want to bind people's consciences, but I think what we do need to take into account when we're thinking about immigration is we have to think through the council of scripture, the whole council of God from old, from the old Testament to the new, you know, what it says about the alien, the sojourner. Right. But I realize that there's a separation of church and state. I recognize that. I honor that, you know, and I thank God for that Um, on one hand. And I understand that it's not a theocracy, you know, so I, I understand that, you know, this is not a Christian nation. I have no, you know, I, I know that. I'm very clear on that. But I think the church is meant to be a prophetic voice, a prophetic witness um, to the culture, you know, to beat back evil and sin when we see it. Um, and so, and I, 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 there is, in that executive order, you're singling out um, people unnecessarily, right? Uh, with with no real legitimate reasons, because the people that are um, included, or the countries that are included on that ban, actually have not uh, mitigated terrorist attacks against us anyway. So there, I don't want to get too deep into the politics, but uh, but my point is that I think that we, the, the church, can't lose her prophetic voice. Is all I'm saying, you know. And so we know that neither the Democrats represent us, neither the Republicans. Um, represent us. And I know that we can say that here in the space as black Christians, I know that's a different story though for uh, many white Christians, which is also part of the problem of why our, our witness um, as prophets is not little p prophets is mm. not as powerful and as potent as it should be. Um, mm. But we need to be able to stand up, you know, when we see th- these types of injustices um, being mitigated. And so, and I know people bring up Obama and how he was bombing over, you know, sent over, you know, 200,000 airstrikes, you know, over in the Middle East and Syria. I'm, oh, I am very much aware of that. I am. Um, should that have been broadcasted more? Yes. You know, um, and we know, but we know that our media, there, there are biases, you know, and, and the news that we get, we have to really work very hard to, to get oftentimes because we're not always getting the full story. And I'm not meaning to undermine the media, but that's just reality we're sinful beings right and so and we're biased in that way but i I, but i wouldn't want to 
I, I hear people using that as a justification to not say anything, okay, against this executive order. And that to me doesn't seem right. We should be trying to fight back anything that's going to, uh, that, that in any way otherizes other people. Um, yeah. Because I think that's a, that is a gospel issue. There are two things that are, are, are simmering in my spirit, if I may. Uh, <laughs> first is that I think it's important um, to mention that the Democratic Party on many issues, including this one, has, does not have clean hands. I think it's important for right. the consistency of the church to mention that. The Obama administration deported more people than the Bush administration did. Come on. Come on. When it comes to talking about welcoming the stranger and being a gracious presence for refugees, we were so understandably at the beginning, but over time, lamentably, inebriated with my president is black that we forget that a Black Lives Matter movement had to emerge. And that Opal Tamidi, one of the three founders of the Black Lives Matter Network, who also runs the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, was beating the drum and wasn't nobody listening to Opal. Yeah, yeah. So, she was. She was. Yep. To talk about uh, the Democratic Party shortcomings, so we can hold the state writ large accountable. The second yes. thing that I think is important to lift up. Oh Lord, my um, thoughts are leaving me. Um, I'll I'll come back to it. My my hair is thinning, y'all. My hair is thinning, so I I, I don't remember. Like, 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 that was like good. Before. No, that was a really really good point. I'm actually I'm glad because you're right. Opal Opal, she been known and she been teaching us. Folks wasn't listening. Been on it. You're right. We got caught up in the symbolism. Uh, this, 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 this is what I want to say. Yeah. If I, I, uh -huh. I think, I think a lot of Christians have understand, particularly Christians who, uh, and as someone who is deeply shaped by, though not directly within or differently situated within the Black evangelical tradition, I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, so like, oh, are, are you I can't, I couldn't hear what you said there. Uh, Andrew. Am, am, I, am I in and out? Yeah, you were going in, you were going in and out. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Start again from where you, you were situ you're situated and then that, I didn't hear anything after that. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the more abbreviated version. Maybe that was the Lord telling me to be less long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I'm suggesting is the way that sometimes Black Christians read scripture, it suggests that you always have to be deferential to the state, whereas when there are reasons of conscience, uh, such as the midwives disobeying Pharaoh's evil um, yeah. and obeying God rather than human authorities. There are other places we could appeal to suggest that for matters of conscience and obedience to God, sometimes you have to cut against the state in the interest of glorifying God and doing right by, by God's people. I just want to lift that up Amen. on this issue or like, whoa, 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 cutting against the executive order. Isn't that not giving unto Caesar the respect that's due Caesar? I think there's another way to kind of raise the That's good. Yeah, no, I, I like, that was good. Good point. I'm glad we heard that. Yes, that's definitely an important thing to recognize because a lot of people don't want to resist because that line of thinking that you mentioned. So glad you highlighted that. Um, um, how should a Christian that is concerned with social justice handle um, social insensitivity in the workplace? 
because I, I know a lot of people, especially young professionals, who are maybe the only African-American on their job. And uh, they're trying to be sensitive uh, because they don't want to get sent to HR. Uh, well, <laughs> but they want to they want to really address these issues and talk about them at work or just, just with people in general because they're this is really a passion and it's uh it's just you you can't not ignore it uh if you're a woke person now if you're asleep and that's a whole that's a whole nother issue um but for people who are woke and are in the corporate world and they might be the only african-american in that space how do you suggest they address people that might be insensitive well i've definitely been there um so i was in corporate america i've been that person uh i was at westminster only black woman in my ended program i got a lot of experience here um <laughs> and so i think um so when i when i when I hear the question, I'm hearing microaggressions, you know, so um, for instance, like if there's, okay, just a brief example. When I first started at Westminster, maybe my first year, they had, um, you know, it's a very, very conservative uh, seminary year. And so um, they don't, oh, and they don't, you know, um, believe, you know, women as pastors or elders, fine. You know, uh, that's, I don't have a disagreement with that, but I don't think that precludes us from proclaiming or teaching or speaking or doing any of that stuff. So we had um, a class for our, um, uh, 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 what's it called, a, a gospel communication course, right? And so in that class, towards the end of the semester, everybody presents uh, a sermon, a message. And so this was the first, the first year that I was there, it was the first year they actually allowed women to do that. And I think I was actually the first woman to deliver a message, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I was. So, so I was the first woman to actually deliver a message and I was the first black woman, right, to do that. And after I gave the message, you know, uh, our, our um, professors critiqued and stuff and he gave me just rave reviews and was like, wow, that was really sound biblically, you know, theologically, systematic, all of that, right? So it was great. Um, and it was very humbling. And then at the end, a classmate came up to me and he's like, I thought that you would be up there you know, shouting and screaming, and, mm. and I'm like, why? Why would you think that? Not that there's anything wrong, but why? Why? Why would you make that assumption? So for me, I, I give that as an example to say, obviously, he's playing off of stereotypes, right? Um, mm -hmm. There's a very stereotypic conversation. He's thinking about maybe black pastors who hoop and do all of that, which is totally fine, you know. Uh, and so I'm like, but he he projected that you know, onto me. And I'm like, that's not what I did. Like, you know, and so I just, I asked him why, you know, and he was just, he couldn't really answer the question. So I say all that to say, I think the, the best way to approach that is to confront it. I'm a confrontational person though. So I say that knowing that I'm a confrontational person. So I don't like to let things, you know, accumulate um, personally, but I think that sometimes you need to ask that question because I don't think when people say these things, I don't think they're expecting you, you know, to actually challenge them or to, or to push back. And so they're oftentimes to be cut off guard. But to me, it's just like that, that at least will get them to think twice before they do something like that again, I'd hope. But yeah, so for me, I, my suggestion is to confront it. 
Um, I don't think you need to go in on the person, but <laughs> depending on what it is, I don't know what, what's said, but I think that you can always ask them, but why? What, why would you make that assumption? Why would you, you know, come, what made you come to that conclusion based off of what I said or did? So I, I'm always one to say confront. Yeah, I um, go to HR if you need to go to HR if there's something you know that's you know serious too. Come on, come on. That that that's it. I I I was feeling that that wavelength. I, I think when there are issues of uh, harassment or intimidation, right. things of that sort, um, going to HR, you may need to escalate in that way. Um, right. I think confrontation is a, is a good word. Uh, I think also, um, just generally speaking, cooperation uh, and connection is a good word. And by that, I mean sometimes uh, folks need to be copied on emails, not to throw folks under the bus, but so that people know that you can you, can, you, you know the intermediate change between HR. If, if if you push me, I just want you to know your supervisor is watching this thread of correspondence. That that that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I've got receipts. You so, so, need so, receipts. <laughs> We, you need receipts. There we go. So, so I would say that's one piece. The, the second piece for those who work in these kind of professions, um, I think sometimes going to the union is appropriate if you're dealing with issues of, of wage theft or people not respecting you for the work that you're doing. Uh, and then sometimes I think it's important when you have uh, kind of folk of color on the Zora Neale Hurston tip where everyone who is of my skin is not necessarily my can. Sometimes you need to have some coffee or some lunch and just say, hey, you know, the way you kind of talked about me in that meeting, you know, I was wondering, could we handle that a little bit differently going forward? So mm. um, hopefully those are tools. And I think the church also is a place where when people stream into our assemblies and they have these microaggressions, they have this weariness and heavy lateness, uh, which isn't just general spiritual fatigue, but it's, you know, workplace stuff. Um, some kind of existential discussion connected to scripture can create space to process and unpack those kind of things so that folks can get yeah. uh, the strategies and techniques to accompany their piety so that they can, you know, be fortified and ready to handle the workplace. Mm -hmm. So good. So good. I love that. Cause um, the, the local church, man, it's a sanctuary. I mean, I know my church, um, it, it's small groups for me, which I have tonight. And so, Many times when I've, you know, had, we're just dealing with just what's going on, you know, uh, whether it's produced brutality, a black woman or man is killed by the police, or if it's a microaggression, or if it's me, you know, um, like as you said, Zora, just thinking, man, I feel most colored when I'm thrown against a sharp white wall, right? You're thinking, you know, you're, you just feel very other, you know? Um, and so that's a space where it's like, I can just unload. You know, we're going to dig into scripture and I, and I get prayer. I get, that's a refuge uh, for me. So yeah, the local church is huge. So tell your friends, plug in, have a, a good community that can, you know, help them with that. Mm -hmm. And, and Marvel, Marvin McMichael's book, um, Preaching to the Black Middle Class, he does a lot um, in that book to help um us navigate through dealing with microaggressions for those mm -hmm. who might be uh young professionals mm -hmm. um, is there any questions that y'all have for each other that i didn't ask mm -hmm. in reference to this conversation <laughs> but no, they're okay. not that i can think of where can i find you on twitter andrew i, I hope i'm not stealing your thunder here i'm just curious <laughs> no i you know. That's a wonderful question to be asked. Uh, Andrew <laughs> David Wilkes. 
Okay, let me um put that down here. Sorry, because I was like, I gotta find you on Twitter. Okay, <laughs> what right. is it again? <laughs> and Andrew J. Wilkes. Okay. We we will and find each other Twitter? on Twitter. Yep, yep. I'll go follow you after this. Yep. Mm-hmm. And your Twitter name? Oh, mine is Sister S I S T A underscore Theology. Uh, well, yeah, spelled like theology. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, on Twitter. So, Th- thank you, Lisa. I, I, I didn't know if I was going to have to raise the question, but you, you intervened in there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the funny thing is, I forgot to do y'all introductions at the beginning. I just went oh, right into the conversation. Yeah. So I'm oh, going to yeah. let y'all introduce who uh, yourselves and give a little bit of background about yourself and how people could connect with the work you're doing, if that's a website. Um, so uh, instead of the introduction, introdu- introductory remarks, it'll be the closing remarks, uh, where you get to uh, just tell our audience a little bit about yourselves. My bad for not doing that in the beginning. Uh, so <laughs> Andrew, you want to go first? Sure, ha- happy to go first. Uh, again, um, Reverend Andrew Wilkes, uh, I work at the uh, Greater Allen Cathedral, um, do social justice and work with young adults there. I also work with young adults alongside my wife. Um, our pastor uh, jointly appointed us to, to do that uh, pastoral work. Um, in another hat, uh, those same life, uh, I teach uh, public policy at City College uh, in New York, which is uh, awesome. in the city. Um, um, doing work in work political science, science work, work. And, um, um, I mentioned uh, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and related platforms, same, same um, handle, Andrew J. Wilkes, and I would love to connect love with folks folks on, on social media, media uh, or, or other ones. And thank you, Lisa and Kimmy, for uh, this wonderful conversation. Kimmy, I pass it to you. Yeah, uh, thank you. I'm so glad we got to meet virtually. So, uh, yeah, my name is Akemini Uwan. I am, if you can't tell, I am a first-generation Nigerian-American. Parents are from Nigeria. I was born in California, West Side. Um, so, <laughs> so, California, I've been in Philly for almost five years, coming up in May. Uh, just graduated from Westminster in May with my MDiv, and I do uh, prime primarily anti-racism work. So writing, speaking, um, and doing those things. And then actually I'm launching a podcast with uh, two of my friends, Dr. Christina Edmondson and Michelle Higgins. It's going to be called Truth Table. It'll be coming out in March, three black women who are reformed, um, leaning and speaking about all the things that we talked about today, speaking about politics, speaking about how do we resist this administration? What does that look like to do that? as Christians, um, and a whole host of other things that we'll be talking about. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, You can find me, oftentimes my work revolves around what I do on social media, although I'm taking a break right now. I'll be back later this month, probably. Uh, But you can find me at uh, sister underscore theology at um, on Twitter, uh, Facebook. I only accept friend requests from people I've met or virtually met. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Instagram, my is my Instagram handle is Spodiotie Angel, which you can find on my Twitter page because it's a long is, is that it's, my favorite, it's my favorite outcast song. <laughs> I'm worshiping. I'm worshiping. Yes. <laughs> 
from my favorite uh, rap group. So, so anyways. Uh, but yeah, so that's where you find me um, in those social media streets. I'll be back soon enough. So thank you so much for having me on the show, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank y'all. I love I'm, what you're I'm doing. With this. I, I love what you're doing. <laughs> I think our audience will love it as well. And I'm excited uh, to put it up. It'll be on uh, Facebook, YouTube, and um, and iTunes. So it'll All be right. everywhere. All right. <laughs> all right. Wonderful. Looking forward. All right. Yes. Well, thank you all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible Engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.